You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 91. And today we're answering the question, how can we tell when safety research is C-R-A-A-P? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. And today, we're going to be a little bit meta and talk about how safety practitioners and anyone else who listens to our podcast, for that matter, can evaluate the safety science evidence for themselves And now, Drew, before we get started, we've worked pretty hard for 90 episodes to not have that little E explicit indicator on our podcast. So maybe let's not sound out our C-R-A-A-P acronym and let our listeners kind of sound it out for themselves. Yeah. Okay, David. I think that kind of defeats the purpose, as we'll get to, as to why the acronym exists in the first place. But yeah, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with it myself. So I'm glad that you've slapped the restriction on. Well, Drew, I used to... um, I, I used to access podcasts through my work, mobile phone, whatever. And the organization used to always have security restrictions that you couldn't actually access any podcast that had the E explicit on it. So for those listeners who are listening through work devices, um, it might make it impossible for them to uh, access this episode. Okay. So, so for today, we're going to base our discussion around a set of guidelines, which from here on, I'm going to call the Sarah Bakersley, the Bakersley Guidelines. This is based on a heap of tools that have existed throughout history, but this particular Bakersley version has really caught on mainly because of the acronym. So two two disclaimers just up front. The first one, um, and David, I think this is correct for both of us, that we don't really strictly follow the guidelines ourselves. But hopefully as we go through, listeners will see that we do pay attention to this sort of thing when we're following the podcast. And the second disclaimer is that Even though I think the guidelines are a really good idea, when I went to the research for the podcast, the first thing I found out is there's pretty good evidence that teaching students using the guidelines doesn't work, which has embarrassed me a little bit because I teach students using these guidelines. But it turns out that even with the guidelines right in front of them, students make some pretty glaring mistakes when it comes to evaluating sources. And that's just got worse once the internet has existed. So as we go through, we'll try to point out some of those mistakes that people make as well and give you some tips for avoiding mistakes. So about the paper Drew today, and it's not a peer-reviewed published paper, but it's a single-page handout and prepared by Sarah Bakersley at the Miriam Library, hence why we'll call this the Bakersley acronym or or criteria, at California State University in 2004. So been around a while, and Bakersley produced this handout for a class teaching students how to evaluate sources. And like you said, Drew, this material is based on some quite long-standing criteria, that libraries uh, use, but her main contribution was to tweak the acronym, and I've got in your notes here, um, Drew, to make it more memorable for students and more embarrassing for age professors to teach to their classes. So, Drew, (laughs) how embarrassing is it for you to teach this to your students? Until I was in my mid-20s, I never swore at all. And and so I've had to like sort of like teach myself as a social thing how to deliberately swear. And it's sort of at the point where I'm a little bit more comfortable with it now. I just 
I'm, I'm quoting someone else, so I'm allowed to say it. Perfect. And ironically here, when we talk about research being C-R-A-A-P, it's actually a good thing. So when we go through this criteria, so it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. But Drew, do you want to get us started? Let's um let's go through. So we've got five five elements of research to to discuss. So there's five elements, and because it's just one sheet, basically we can tell you everything that is on this sheet of paper as well as our own comments. So we'll start off with currency, which is the timeliness of the information. So when was it first published or posted posted? Has it been revised or updated? Do you have a topic that requires things to be current or is it a topic that's okay for older sources? And just, you know, a basic Sunday check if it's got links, do those links still work or are they out of date? And so Drew, when is new, I suppose, more recent research and information better? As a general rule, we want any research to be fairly new. And by new, what I usually use is the kind of default on Google Scholar, which is published in the last five years. Sometimes if you can't find anything in the last five years, you might stretch it out to 10 years. But once something's older than five years, you just begin to begin become a bit suspicious. And suspicious, not so much of the research at the time, but curious as to what's been published since. Yeah. And so this really matters with things like literature reviews or if you're reading a different paper that's got a literature review in it, or if it's a meta-analysis, you just wonder, okay, so this might have been state-of-the-art at the time it was published, but what's been written since? What's missing? And I think, Drew, in terms of what's happening around the world at the moment, if you want to understand the latest immunology on COVID-19, you probably want a late 2021 paper, not a mid-2020 paper. Exactly. So the speed at which something is moving determines just how recent it has to be. So medical stuff, definitely, you always want to be really recent because it's quite possible for one new study to basically discredit everything that's gone before. With something that's a bit more stable, like, you say, economics or probably most of safety science, one study isn't going to suddenly change the way you think about the world. It's not going to disprove everything that's gone before. Yeah, but something like uh, psychology, I guess, is... A lot of the generally accepted principles in that space, some of those those research research papers are in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And I, I remember saying to people, having done a psychology degree more than 20 years ago now, it would be a mistake to access anything that I learned during that, during that degree. Yeah, because sometimes that old work just gets completely replaced or discredited. And all of the recent work knows that. And all of the older work just treats it as if it's absolute fact. And so it's really quite dangerous sometimes to use very, very old sources. So Drew, then would there be such a thing as something being too recent or, or too new? So there are a couple of times when being published really, really recently is a red flag. And the first one is that if it's very new, it hasn't had a chance to attract critique. So if you're not an academic yourself, then if something is hot off the presses, that's the worst time to read it. You at least wait long enough to get a reaction from other people so that you know generally what to look out for. You let someone else do the hard work of evaluating it, deciding whether it's reputable. And I think, Drew, I'm thinking now of, uh, you know, if you, if you picked up that now infamous research of the link between vaccines and autism when that was brand new, which has obviously since been redacted and, and there's a body of literature around that, but picking that up straight hot off the press with a very strong new claim, you know, maybe something that you want to be cautious about. Yeah, it, it's very tempting, particularly for 
uh, newspapers or people whose job it is to share information, to want to be first with the news. But, you know, just being, give other people a chance to react sometimes is a good strategy. The other thing that really matters is when it's based on statistics. So a lot of the ways in which things like accident and injury statistics are collected means that they don't really stabilise for a couple of years. And that's just to do with delays in how things are reported and synthesised. So, you know, the, the, we currently don't really know, for example, what the death figures are for 2020. You know, even though it seems like 2020 has been and gone, those numbers are going to change for the next couple of years until they settle down. Um, and generally what happens is they end up being underreported. And so we see, thing, we see what we think are patterns, and those patterns disappear as things smooth out over a couple of years. Yeah. So, Drew, are there circumstances when older research would, would then be better? Uh, oh, I was trying to think of good examples of this. And it's not necessarily the exact age. It's really more how close a source is to the original. So for historical information, you want to get as close to the source material as possible. Ideally, you want to actually pick up and read the source for yourself. And so newer work often has multiple steps. If you read something today that is talking about, say, safety practices in the 1920s, chances are what you're reading will be citing something which is citing something else, which is citing something else, which is citing something else, which is someone who actually saw the original. And every one of those steps is a chance to get corrupted. Ideally, what you want is someone who wrote in the 1920s about what they're doing in the 1920s, because that person would know firsthand. Andrew, I think it was episode 17 or so when I interviewed Carsten Bush with the question, what did Heinrich really say? He staunchly made that, that point that um, most of what uh, is being written now in relation to that is, is so far removed that it, it, it misses the original point. Yeah, and I think that's a thing that we've said on the podcast before as well, is that when you're talking about what someone else said, go and read what that person said, no matter how old it is. You know, they might be out of date, but at least you won't be misrepresenting what the idea was. Yeah, so if you want to read an, another podcast we've done on Swiss cheese, if you want to read that, read read Jim Reason's work in the in the nineties. Don't um don't read commentary on it from from twenty twenty one. Yeah. So ultimately, basically, what this means in practice is, if you're using a source, think about what you're using the source for, and whether that means that you should be looking for something that is relatively recent, or whether you're happy with something older. And the older something is, the more important it is to read about the source itself, as in like look up the title or the author and see what's been said about that same source or topic recently. So for papers, for example, look at who has cited that paper and what did they say when they cited it. Yeah, perfect, Drew. So that's that's currency and the CE. Should we move on? Okay, so our next topic is relevance. Um, so relevance is about how well the information matches your needs. And the most obvious one there that is oddly hard to drill into students, is does the thing you're reading actually set out to answer the question that you want answered? And it's really easy to sort of like accidentally pick up a source that is intended for a different purpose that doesn't really answer your question. So for example, the task that I give students is find out whether playing violent video games makes teenagers more violent. And you end up with all these things that aren't quite that. So, you know, does playing the violent video games make the kids feel more aggressive? Or does it make adults be more aggressive? So, you know, working out sort of like how close something is to actually answering your question. 
Uh, so, so just reading directly from the original sheet, just before we discuss, it says, is the, who's the intended audience for the information? Is the information at an appropriate level, not too elementary, not too advanced? Have you looked at a variety of sources before deciding to use this particular source? And would you feel comfortable citing this source? That's like an embarrassment test. <laughs> if you're not going to admit that this is your source, should you really be using it? Yeah, so Drew, you mentioned that example that you give your, your students, and I guess that's a really uh, big and important central question when you pick up a paper and think about this this idea of relevance is not just whether the source itself is okay, like we talk about in the podcast, is it is it reliable, who are the authors and that, but is it the most suitable source for the, the question or the information that you're trying to draw out of the out of the paper? Yeah, and a good way to do that is just to think about where you would expect to find the best information. And rather than just doing a search on Google, go and actually look for that information. So, you know, if it's the sort of thing that you'd expect to find on a government website, don't Google it, go to a government website and do a search there. You know, I think, is it true that most of our listeners are from Australia, David? Uh, not at all, Drew. About 50, 50% are in Australia and 50% of the downloads are international. Okay, so for the 50% of Australian listeners, don't trust statistics anywhere unless you've checked the Australian Bureau of Statistics first, because we have a really well-funded, really expert government statistics agency that can be trusted. And so you know, why not look at the people whose job it is to come up with good statistics before you trust a statistic published somewhere else? And um, I can't really speak with authority to any other country, I'm sorry about whether your government statistic agency is trustworthy or not. I just know that ours is. And I think it's a good point, Drew. And I think if you want to find something about a particular discipline, an example here might be like machine learning, go and look in a machine learning journal. Don't necessarily look for a machine learning paper within a safety science journal. Listeners may have noticed David and I reference this occasionally. When we're talking about a particular topic, we'll say, you know, we don't think that this topic is covered very well in the safety literature. So we've gone to an organizational science journal or we've gone to a psychology journal and tried to find something there because we think that's where the reputable information is to be found. So Drew, what else, what else do we need to think about when it comes to relevance? So the one other thing I'd say is that this can be relative to a particular person. So, you know, we're both academics. We're pretty comfortable looking up information in academic journals. We don't really have a lot of trouble reading academic articles. But that doesn't mean that that's the best way for everyone to do it. And one of the ways you can sort of like see this is a trap. If you ever look up a technical topic on Wikipedia that you already know something about, you'll often find that the Wikipedia entry has good sources, but it was written by a 16-year-old from Iceland who lacked the technical knowledge to correctly read and interpret the source that they're using. So just having a good source isn't very good if you don't understand it well enough. Sometimes it's actually better to have something that's written in plain language that you trust rather than something that you don't fully understand enough to trust. Yeah, Drew, you can speak a little bit for yourself on the comfort with reading academic papers. Anytime I see a, a statistics table inside a paper, I remember a number of times I've, uh, I've sent you some ideas for, for episodes and you've come back and said the statistics actually don't match the findings that the authors are claiming because of your knowledge and capability in the actual quantitative research methods, which um, you know, which, which my understanding is nowhere near yours of those types of things. And I think that's a good warning for people. If you read the author's claims in the discussion and can't understand the statistics for yourself, then 
you may not have something that's entirely relevant for you. Yeah, that's going to be true for everyone just on different topics. There are a lot of medical papers, for example, where I literally just can't read the abstract or the method of the paper. It's referring to so many specialised techniques that I just don't understand at all. Um, So I have to rely on other people to summarise it and read the more plain language stuff for myself. So speaking of relying on other people, and I guess the the authors of the publication or the source themselves, so the A in the middle of the acronym stands for authority. Do you want to tell us a little bit about authority in relation to the the usefulness of the source? Sure. I think this one is really important and everyone does this in different ways with different levels of awareness that we're doing it. But you, I, I, would, I would go so far as to say that most of our knowledge we don't really get in particularly reliable or rigorous ways for everyone. For everyone, I think our most common way of getting information is someone else tells it to us. And it's just whether we happen to be good or bad at picking the right people to listen to. And you can look at, like, uh, I don't know if we want to name drop, but <laughs> say, say well, let's go for podcasts like Joe Rogan. You look at what he does on his podcasts and he interviews really important, famous people. He gets real experts and he gets non-experts. And why is it that he gets stuff so badly wrong? It's really just he doesn't know which ones to listen to. He doesn't know who is reliable and who is not reliable. And so he uses information from an unreliable person to override a reliable person. Great. Nice one, Drew. The Safety Work podcast takes on the world's most popular (laughs) podcast. Um, Excellent. (laughs) All right. Um, Oh, well, since we're giving shout outs to podcasts that have got more listeners than ours in the hope of stealing their listeners... Uh, there's a legal podcast I listen to, say, Opening Arguments. Yeah. Um, far greater production quality than we will ever have, uh, David. Um, <laughs> far, far more reliable at putting out episodes. And one reason that I listen to it is because I trust them as an authority. They tell me about stuff that I would not access firsthand. I would not read firsthand. I would not have the time or the expertise to go to. But I trust that they are reliably giving me the information. Yeah, and I'm the same with, say, Drew Tim Hartford's Cautionary Tales just how well-researched and, and credible as a journalist he is. And now we've got a good link of people we can cross-list in this episode <laughs> and see whose listeners we can brag in. Perfect. So I guess the, the point here is that it's not a logical fallacy to appeal to the authority of information because we can't evaluate everything firsthand ourselves. What's a fallacy is if you use the authority to, to override problems with it and to like overlook real problems with the data just because... It's from someone with authority. So how do you tell whether a source has authority? And the big thing here, and this is a mistake that we particularly see undergraduate and graduate students making all the time, is you can never evaluate the authority of a source based on the source itself. So you see someone pick it up and they say, oh, this is by a a person with a PhD or this is by someone with expertise in this topic, or this is by someone from Harvard University. And they're just reading what the source is telling you. And if the source isn't trustworthy, then you shouldn't trust the source to tell you just how much of an expert it is. And it's one of the simplest things that you can do to Google the title of something that you're reading and to Google the name of the author and just see what crops up. You know, if you're reading a paper about statistical analysis, and you Google the author, 
And the first 20 hits are other publications that this person has written about statistical analysis. That's a pretty good sign that maybe they're an expert and can be trustworthy. You Google their name and first 20 hits are either podcasts or videos they've produced about themselves or other people complaining about how shoddy their work is. That's probably a bad sign. And most of us just sort of never even go to that point of Googling other people's names to see what else they've done. So, Drew, then, I guess, I mean, we all are at various points. So all sources and, and academics are at various points in their career. And so why, why does authority matter so much when we would normally be talking about taking the quality of the source based on the quality of the source? Like, I mean, we do it in the podcast a lot. We talk about who the authors are in every episode and we'll, we'll mention their institutions or other work they've done or their position. So it's clearly important, but how does it help us with the quality of the information itself? Okay, okay. That's, that's, that's a fair point and it's an important question. Really, authority matters for everything that you can't independently check yourself. So, so a good example there is someone is describing to you generally what is known about the state of the field they're writing in. You can't check that yourself if it's not your field. You, you could check each of the individual papers they cite, but you wouldn't know if those are the important papers or if they're cherry-picking the data. All you know is what they put in front of you. Whereas if someone is an expert in that field, then you can at least trust that they know what the field looks like. They know what's important. They know what's relevant. They might still deliberately cherry pick, but at least they're not going to accidentally do it. Um, and that's where you sort of have to rely on, can they be trustworthy in other ways? And the same thing goes with statistical methods. I mean, David, I know you think that relative to you, I know more about statistics. But I am not a statistician. I know some basic checks, and the reason why I get annoyed at papers is because they fail even the basic checks that I know about. But you know, beyond that point, I don't even know enough to analyse whether the statistics have been done correctly. So what I need to do is trust the authority of that person. Are they an expert in this type of analysis? And then you get to other things that are subtly hidden, like if someone is doing ethnographic work, they're going out into the field and collecting data and reporting it back. You can't see exactly what questions they asked. You can't see exactly what people told you. You can't see exactly how they've analysed it. You're just trusting that what they're giving you is a fair representation. And the fact that someone's got a good track record in this area helps fill in all of those gaps for you. And so that's why on the podcast we will often sort of like mention the authors of the papers and what else those authors have done. And you're often, the first author of the paper might not have the expertise. They might be a field researcher doing their first study. And that's fine. Everyone's got to write their first paper and their first paper might be brilliant. Um, but what we love to see is that the third author supervising them is someone who's an expert in the methods, who's making sure and basically vouching for the work done by the first person. Yeah, Drew. So the second A in our C-R-A-A-P acronym is accuracy. So beyond the authority of the... Uh, author um, of the source themselves, now we're starting to talk about the reliability and the truthfulness and the correctness of the content The content in the source. Do you want to talk about what we look for in terms of accuracy? So, so this is the point where I think it genuinely gets hard. And it gets hard not just in finding out the accuracy, but in distinguishing between accuracy and authority. Um, and I think this is one where Bakersley actually gets it wrong in her detailed descriptions. And see if you can spot when I list out what she's got under accuracy. She says, where does the information come from? Is the information supported by evidence? 
Has the information been reviewed or refereed? Can you verify any of the information in another source or from personal knowledge? Does the language or tone seem unbiased and free of emotion? Is there spelling, grammar or typographical errors? Now, you look through those lists, a lot of those are actually using authority as a marker of accuracy. <laughs> they're not actually checking the accuracy, they're saying, based on where the source is from, can you trust it to be accurate? Which is authority. So accuracy is hard. So Drew, I, I think that's a really good point. I think accuracy, we've got to maybe have some proxies for accuracy, like particularly when we don't have the personal knowledge to judge or even you know the detailed understanding of the, the research method. So maybe this authority becomes a bit of a substitute for, for accuracy, but is there things that we can specifically look at in the source to get a sense of accuracy? Well, I think there's a few basic things that anyone can do. Um, and the first thing that you can do is you can read the introduction into the method of an academic paper and find out what the authors actually did. So you don't need to understand the details to know that, oh, in this paper they went out and interviewed a bunch of people, or in this paper they conducted a survey. And what you find very, very often is you read the introduction, you go looking for the method section, and you realise that the authors didn't actually do anything. You All they've done is read a bunch of stuff, think about it, and write. Now that is fine, there's nothing wrong with writing a paper like that, but that tells you immediately that the source you're reading contains no original facts. The authors haven't collected data using any method. And so that means that you shouldn't be citing or relying on that source as a source of facts. You should be looking at it as a source of ideas, of analysis, but you should be going to other sources where people have actually done the work for the facts. So that's sort of the first basic thing that you can do. The next thing you can do is if there is a method, then you can think about what the method can and cannot do. Because different research methods, even without understanding the detail, are just only capable of doing certain things. Um, David, you've probably got your own pet examples here, but for me, one of the big ones is that if you've conducted a survey, that can only ever tell you what people are thinking or reporting about their own behaviour. A survey can never tell you reliable facts about the world. So you know, when someone conducts a survey and they say that you know, 56% of people drive on the left-hand side of the road, you can't trust that at all. A survey can't measure how many people drive on one side of the road or the other. The most it can do is tell you that 56% of people tell you that they're driving on the left-hand side of the road. And that becomes very obvious when it comes to, you know, 90% of people claim that they never break the speed limit. We, we know that it can't, survey can't actually tell us when they do or don't. Yeah, Drew, and I think my pet example when I was doing a lot of work looking at influence, particularly around safety professionals in organisations and, and how they influence um, and other roles in organisations as well, you'd see a lot of survey questions where someone would be surveyed and asked how they influence. And then the paper would go on to claim that, wow, this is how people influence. And it's not at all. It's how they think they approach their role. That provides no no facts about influence because they're not even talking about the, they're not even talking to or observing the people who are meant to be being influenced themselves. Yeah. So David, I think we've got time here to just briefly talk through a few of the different types of research and what they're sort of good for and not good for and what to watch out for. Perfect, Drew. I will defer to your expertise for this. So, so broadly speaking, when we're talking about research, we usually break it up into quantitative and qualitative. And fundamentally, there is no difference between quantitative and qualitative, except that quantitative uses numbers 
and qualitative generally doesn't. Anything else you hear about sort of like relative quality of quantitative versus qualitative or which is more scientific, all of those are just value judgments that we put over the top. The difference is that quantitative needs to break thing, the world up into things that we can count, whereas qualitative describes things using words. So in safety, the main sorts of quantitative things that we do are we do lots of surveys where we're asking people their opinions about things or asking them about their own behaviour or the behaviour of other people. And that turns into a number because of how we ask the questions. You know, we say rate from a scale of one to five how you feel about something. Or is this something that you do all the time, some of the time, none of the time? And we turn that into a number. Second type of number we use a lot of is injury statistics. How many people get hurt in a given period of time? Um, and then occasionally, but not nearly as often as I personally would like, we do experiments or we evaluate interventions. And we've got some sort of end point of that experiment, which is expressed in terms of a number. David, does that sort of cover the main ones? Any other types of quantitative research you see a lot of? No, Drew, I think, I think they're the ones, particularly surveys and injury statistics are the ones that show up um, over and over again in, in safety science. Um, so for each of these, there are some really basic quality things that you can look for. So for surveys, the one that I always look for and the one that I always complain about, including on the podcast, is just how closely do the claims that they're making match what they're actually measuring? Because people in safety love to measure someone's opinion and then make a claim about their behaviour or even about you know, an entire organisation. And that gap between, oh, I asked someone a question on a survey versus is the organisation safe or not is a very, very big gap. Yeah. So those questions, those questions typical of culture surveys around, um, say, do I take risks when uh, production schedules are tight and 50% of people say yes? And then you can't then make the claim that 50% of people take risks when production schedules are tight. You can only ever claim that 50% of people report, you know, taking risks when, um, when production schedules are tight. Yes. And then because the reporting and the doing can themselves be influenced by different things, you can't even assume that one is just roughly good enough to tell you about the other one. The second main type of thing is injury statistics. And the thing to look for here is just how vulnerable are the statistics to variations in how things are reported and recorded and collected. And so you've always got to look for this like second explanation that actually it's not a real change in safety, it's a change in reporting. Um, and how well the study sort of manages that possibility tells you a lot about how good an injury study is. Yeah, and I think Drew, particularly in something like this, um, and we don't need to make this a, a long conversation because we've talked about um, injury statistics a number of times on the podcast. But even even this idea of there's so many confounding variables in something like that, even trying to create some level of analysis between something that the researchers is looking at and something as as broadly impacted as injury statistics is something that's unlikely to be very accurate. Yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it. And so the third category of things are when we've got something that's an experiment or a intervention evaluation. And what we look for here is really just the markers as to whether what this was conducted as a deliberate experiment and whether it was a well-designed experiment. So you look for simple things like, did they have a control group? Did they have one group that they intervened with, another group that they didn't intervene with? Because without that control, it's never able to really claim what caused any sort of change in the outcome. 
you look for things like, did they measure both groups before and after? Because if the two groups weren't the same to start with, then it doesn't really tell you much that they're the same, that they're different to finish with. That difference could just be because they started off different. We look for things like the size of the experiment. Did they just have enough participants to reliably get the answers that they're looking for? And are there any sort of other explanations? Are there other things that could have been causing any variation that we think we see? And I think, Drew, for those, if you do want to be reading a lot about exper- and even, even understanding in detail the research methods, Drew, I think you gave me about, I just looked at my shelf, you gave me about six or seven uh, example tech or texts around research design and qualitative and quantitative research methods and that. And depending on how how far our listeners want to go, it, it may actually be worth your while um, picking up a book or two on research methods. I, I noticed Creswell's Research Design and a few other books on, on the bookshelf, Drew, and even just leafing through a book like that to to understand what good research design looks like would looks like would be a very useful thing to do. Yeah, it's funny. Sometimes you can be like reading a paper and they tell you what they did and you're just noddling along thinking, yeah, that sounds fine, that sounds fine, that sounds fine, that sounds fine. But then if you've ever had to do it yourself or you've ever read a book on how it's meant to be done, suddenly you've got all these questions. That does, sounds fine, but why did you do it like this when everyone else does it like that? You notice that you just haven't happened to mention this little thing that we know that other people do. And little things too about, you know, where samples are drawn from, you know, how, how you know, you might say, okay, there 400 people did this interview, but how they accessed the sample when you learn that they went to one professional association and they only spoke to safety professionals who are affiliated with the professional association, what does that tell you about the demographics and the representativeness of that sample. And so it's very easy to nod along and go, oh, yeah, they surveyed 400 people and this and that. But you have to sort of get to the next level to know whether or not the the information or the, the source is as accurate as you want it to be. Yeah, there's, there's a big difference between saying 100% of people really, really cared about safety and 100% of people who clicked on a link which said, here is a survey about caring about safety, cared about safety. Sort of makes a bit of a difference. So, Drew, then in qualitative, do you want to talk, talk a little bit about qualitative research then? No numbers. Yeah. So, so when we say no numbers, we're talking about things like ethnography, where you go to a place and you observe people and you look at what they're doing. Surveys, but surveys without numbers. Surveys with more open questions where people can just write in their own responses. Um, or probably the most common one is interviews. Now, Here's a sort of like anti thing to look for, is that the number of participants is always much lower in qualitative research. So whereas a sort of like moderate sized survey, a quantitative survey might have 400 participants, a moderately sized interview study might have 10 participants. Just because there is so much more data from each participant in a qualitative study. There's so much more work to collect the data, so much more work to analyze it. So don't go by just the raw numbers here and say that you know one study is better than another because it had 10 times as many participants. The things to really look out for in qualitative research is how much are the participants being led by the researchers? So what I really want to know when I'm reading a qualitative study is not what the participant answered. I want to know what the question was in the first place and how much that question drove them towards that particular answer. I also want to know what the participants actually said in terms of like specific examples and direct quotes, rather than just the raw summaries given by the researchers. So whereas good 
quantitative research gives you like really precise descriptions of the method and how the method was conducted and how it was controlled and what the variables were. Really good qualitative research gives you that feel like you were there, like you're actually listening to the participants in their own voice telling you this. And you can believe that the researcher is giving you a fair summary of what that data was. Yeah, Drew, when we published the professional identity paper during my PhD and, and that was interview based, there was four questions that, that, I, that I asked, four, four very broad open questions. And that was enough to have interviewees talking for between 60 and 90 minutes of those four questions. And those four questions were listed out in the method section of the paper. So, you know, if your source says we did interviews and doesn't actually list and tell you what questions they asked and how they asked those questions, then it, it's probably a little bit of a red flag to not know exactly how those interviews were carried out and how much the participants were led by the researchers during the data gathering. Yeah, and the like, double red flag is when you see the questions and the headings in the results directly match the questions. So, you know, we asked people about these four topics and their answers revealed that they really cared about these exact same four topics. So, you know, that the questions have defined what was found rather than the answers. Yeah, great overview, Drew. So the final, the final letter in the acronym, the P, do you want to start us talking about purpose? And, um, and yeah, the reason that the source exists in the first place. So, so the main reason why purpose is here is mainly to start distinguishing between academic and non-academic sources. You, so it, most academic work doesn't have a clear purpose other than to describe the academic work. And you can try to read into it that maybe the authors have got an agenda, maybe the research was paid by someone with an agenda, maybe they did this research to try to prove something. But reading those sort of things in is very hard. Often really what we want to do is just understand, you know, why was this written in the first place? Was it written as an academic work or was it written really as a newspaper post or as an opinion piece or as a persuasive piece? And it's not that something is inherently unreliable just because it's not objective, but we need to interpret it based on those feelings. Yeah, I think, Drew, even if we take, again, recent examples of like the amount of information there is around the world for, say, the topic of covid and, you know, the thing is, where, where are you going to for your information? And, you know, the, something like a peer-reviewed journal paper, the purpose of, of um, publishing research around COVID in a peer-reviewed journal is to sort of inform and teach, uh, whereas reading about COVID from journalistic sources or even from um, government associations, you know, the World Health Organization has a particular agenda. Every, every government around the world has a particular agenda. So depending on what it is that you're trying to get out of that source, there's very much some places to go and not go when it comes to, you know, this part of the quality of the, you know, the information that you're getting. Once you've found a source, I think one of the big mistakes that people make is using sources for information which is tangential to why the source was produced. Um, and the really common one that you see, even academics make this mistake all the time, is when you're writing a research paper, you usually start off by giving a couple of paragraphs of background or context, just to explain to other people why you've written the paper. And one of the really sloppy things that people do is they have a fact and they're looking for a source that supports that fact. And they pick up a paper and within the first couple of paragraphs of that paper, it says the same fact. So they think, aha, okay, this paper supports what I'm doing, I can cite it. But when people are writing those introductions, they're doing that same thing. They're not really concerned about the facts. This isn't their key paper. They're just giving you background. 
So all they've done is just found sources that say the same thing. And you end up with these chains of pseudo-fact that go back through 20 generations of papers, all citing each other, and none of those papers was ever designed to find out the truth of the fact. And I think, Drew, I've seen, I've seen an example of this um, in, actually, again, I mentioned Carsten Bush earlier with that. If you read Carsten's actual thesis on, on Heinrich and how Heinrich is representing the safety science literature, he's got pages and pages of tables in there of authors who have cited some of these original Heinrich texts. And he's actually got in the table how they were cited and in support of what particular idea and then what the original source said and actually the accuracy levels. And they were quite, even for very credible academics, the accuracy of the citation and the representation of the ideas was um, was was quite a long way off being as reliable as you'd like it to be. And I think that's because these chains, people are citing some, people find a citation in another paper and so they cite the original citation through the interpretation that that other author has made. Uh, let me just give you one particular example of this, David, which has been a bugbear throughout my career. So I'll tell you the exact paper. It's a paper written, well, published in 1965 in a system safety conference. And the paper is called Advances in Fault Tree Analysis. And if you, as a listener, just want to hop online and search this paper, you'll find how often this paper has been cited. It is cited like hundreds of times by people who obviously were never at that original 1965 conference. I did my thesis on fault trees. And in trying to write that thesis, I was trying to find the original paper because all of these other people obviously thought it was important because they'd all cited it. Um, as we talk here, David is looking up this paper. And just, just remember that I, I did my PhD at a time when the internet didn't really exist as a good source of academic papers. And so I couldn't find this paper. I did work out that there were probably four copies in existence, all within university archives that I didn't have access to. And so, you know, we've got two explanations here. Either these hundreds of other authors had all managed to dig up one of these copies in one of these four university archives that I couldn't get access to, or they were all lying about having read this paper that they were citing. And when I eventually, many, many years later, a PDF appeared on the internet and I managed to get a copy, I'm pretty sure they were all just lying because it didn't really say what they said it said. So there you go. So, so is there anything else you want to say about purpose or any other aspects of this uh, CRAAP um, acronym for the, the quality of research or the quality of a source? Okay, so, so the one final thing I want to say about purpose is just this, this type of citing things just because someone else has said them is particularly how myths about effectiveness of things spread. So you very, very often get these claims that things work or don't work or are well known to be effective or are proven to be effective or a particular technique is good for a particular purpose. Those are the type of claims that get reported like this. And so if you want to like make a claim that, you know, safety culture interventions are good at reducing the rate of accidents, then you've got to find a paper that actually studies the rate of accidents, not a paper just that happens to say that same stuff that you want to say. And so often these claims of effectiveness have no original source. They're just someone originally thought it was true or didn't care whether it was true or not and just said it as background to their own work. So, Drew, let's finish the episode the way that we always do with some practical takeaways. Uh, 
and you, you've got a few here. So do you want to do you want to get us started? What can our what can our listeners take away from yeah from what we've shared about the quality of source material? Okay, so the first one, and if this is the only thing that listeners take away from the episode, I would love it. And because it doesn't just apply to safety, it doesn't just apply to research; it applies to everything. You can't fully evaluate a source just by looking at the source. The only way just to be a smart consumer of online information is to get into the habit of Googling for the source, not Googling for the topic that led you to the source in the first place. So when you think you've got a good source, find out some information about that source. Find out what other people have said about that same source. You listen to a particularly good podcast episode. Don't trust the stuff we said on the podcast episode. Google what other people say about us and see whether they think we're reliable or not or whether the internet is filled with criticisms about just how much CRAP David and Rue's episode about CRAP is filled with. Yeah, or even, I guess, like the, 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 I mean, we always give listeners the the title of the article that and all the articles that we're looking at in each episode. So again, you know, you know, pick up those titles and, and put them into Google yourselves and go to the source and, and go to what other people say as well and, and, and see how well that aligns or doesn't align with what, what we've had to say about it. So the second one's a little bit related, which is just be careful of secondhand representation of sources. Doesn't mean you're not allowed to use secondhand sources. Just be aware that that's what you're doing. So just pay attention to whether what you're reading is a research article or is it a press release by the university about the research article or is it a newspaper report based on a press release about the original article. And don't confuse one for the other. Check, you know, which one are you reading? And I think we've... We've sort of talked a lot about literature reviews, for example, Drew, on the podcast and how useful they are to get an overview of a particular um, domain or, or field or or even as, as we've done, aspect of safety science. But something that you always do, and you don't just do this with literature, literature reviews, you do this with, with every paper where listeners, Drew will come back to me and go, oh, I thought this was going to be an easy one, but I got <laughs> tied up chasing down all of the citations um, in the introduction just try, to try to understand the background and I guess that's uh, another point here with the secondhand representation, Drew. Like if you pick up a literature review, if there's three or four things in that that you particularly want to take out of it, you know, go to the three or four key papers that are cited and just just make sure that literature review has represented the original source, you know, consistently and accurately. Or you could just use David's strategy, which is to find a really pedantic friend. And when you think you've got a good <laughs> yeah. source, send them the paper and just say, what do you think about this? <laughs> Have someone else do the rabbit hole chasing for you. Yes, yes, I do play on your curiosity in some of these areas, Drew. So third, third takeaway is just be careful of broad brush categories for source evaluation. So, you know, there are things that we say are good clues for good research. Things like, you know, is it peer reviewed or is it published by an important university? Those things are clues, but they're never enough to judge the reliability of a particular source. You know, there is peer reviewed junk published in major journals by authors at prestigious universities. And we're talking here about the worst kind of junk, claiming that telepathy exists, published in the biggest journals of all time, like Nature and Science, by authors at universities like, you know, Harvard University. So don't use the broad categories. Um, and you know, at the other end, there's stuff that is reliable, that is podcasts or comments on Reddit, or on LinkedIn. So, you know, we use these things as clues, but they are not definitive. Great, Drew. And, um, and yeah, final takeaway. So final way takeaway is try to get into the habit of considering 
at least the broad method that the source uses to reach its conclusions. So you, know, you don't have to understand the details of the statistics. The details of the statistics. You don't even have to be able to pronounce the word <laughs> statistics. <laughs> Just understand that the paper is a statistical analysis and have some idea as to whether that sort of method can match the type of needs you have for the information. Understand that the paper is doing a bunch of interviews and what you can and can't learn from interviews. Yeah, so if you want to get some insights into some, say, some safety leadership and you want to get some ideas about what senior leaders in certain organisations think about certain aspects of safety leadership, then you, know, you might find a, a paper that's got interviews or a survey of a senior leadership population in a similar industry to you, and that might be incredibly useful because the broad method that the source is using is likely to give you the insights that you want based on what you're trying to take out of that source. So, Drew, the question that we asked this week was, how can you tell when safety research is, well, CRAAP? Your, your thoughts? Well, I think the answer is that while you can't use them as an automatic checklist, the Baker's Lee guidelines that we've covered here provide some useful prompts to the sort of questions you should be asking and the sort of things you can be looking for. And so, Drew, I'm hoping that we can actually get this one pager and, uh, and link it in the comments of when we post this episode. So It is very widely used, very widely available. We can just possibly even take a screenshot of it and drop it into the episode. Perfect. Perfect. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions, ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 